As we continue our study on Explore God, we're nearing the end of the series of messages. Um, in, in many ways, I wish this sermon had been uh, the first sermon uh, because everything is contingent. Our faith, everything is contingent upon uh, the Bible. Have you ever thought about it like this? We would know hardly anything about Jesus. We'd know nothing about the church. Uh, we would know any, hardly anything about the ways of God. Uh, were it not for uh, this book that I hold in my hands today. And I just have to say, it's probably the most important sermon I've ever preached in my life. I remember about 10 years ago, I was uh, preaching in a meeting in Chesapeake, uh, Virginia, September the 21st, uh, nine years ago, almost nine years ago to this day. And as I was uh, uh, preaching, this doesn't happen to me, I don't have a whole lot of original thoughts, but I had an original thought. It came to me as I was, as I was preaching And I said these words, I said, if God can create the world, and if God can raise his son from the dead, surely he can write a book. And I believe that that's exactly what God has done. He has given us 66 books, a love letter straight from heaven to our hearts. And I'm just so honored and and just almost, uh, you know, just with a sense of awe, really, uh, to be able to stand before you. And and we do this every Sunday here at Great Hills. If you're a guest, we really do believe in the Bible, and we really... uh, try to live by it, and we speak from it, we preach from it. And so this question today, is the Bible reliable? Uh, I'm going to preach it for two reasons primarily. Number one, and many of you perhaps today here on television or on the internet, uh, you really are a seeker or you are uh, someone who who genuinely would like to be able to trust the Bible, and you're skeptical though. Uh, Many of us are, are bent towards skepticism or cynicism. And so I hope that as I share this message with you, that it will encourage you and you'll be able to see that, yes, uh, uh, the Bible is indeed very uh, trustworthy. Now, of course, I can share with you all kinds of data and factual information, and I will be doing that. But bottom line, is, in the end, you still have to trust God. You know, God always reserves room for us uh, to trust Him. And so that's the first reason I'll share this message. The second reason is I really hope to equip believers. If you're here today and and you live with or you work with those who are not just skeptical and, and cynical, but they are just a little bit uh, jaded or prejudiced against Christianity and against the Scripture. And some of you are like, well, welcome to Austin, Brother Dan. Uh, 92% of the people in our city don't go to anybody's church, and I, I get that. And so one of the main reasons I want to preach this message is that it might be able to equip you and encourage you so that when somebody asks you, just like they asked me two weeks ago, Oh, the Bible, there's nothing really special about it, is it? I mean, after all, it was written so many years ago and been translated so many times. I'm sure it's full of a lot of errors, and and we cannot trust it. But think about it like this. If we cannot trust the entire Bible, that, that God really did create heaven and earth and us, and we are not the product of billions and millions of years, if God really did not create Adam and Eve, and if God did not create a fish that swallowed Jonah, if we doubt that, if we question any of the historicity of Scripture, then who are we to say with any authority that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You see, you really have to believe all of it or don't believe any of it. And I believe all of it. I, I believe it with all my heart. I've based my life upon it, my family upon it, this church upon it upon the Word of God. And so, I want to read to you a couple of passages of Scripture. I hope you'll take some time. Maybe you have a pen or a pencil and jot down some notes as we go along. I, I will give this little caveat about this sermon. Uh, just, just in case you're, you're wondering, all my messages, I, I have them in manuscript form. 
And usually when I get to page 5, that translates to 45-minute sermon. Okay, I know, that's just the way it works out for me. And uh, this one has eight pages. So, um, I know, but I'm not going to keep you here forever. I'm, I'm really not. I'm going to try to edit it as I preach it. But I do invite you, if you want this message, you're, you're free to have it. We'll make copies of it for you. In fact, I really encourage, I don't get any royalties or any kind of bonus from stuff like this, but I just want to offer this to you. And if you're listening um, direct TV on the NRB network, God bless you. We would love to give you this, or our church family here, we'd love to grant you this uh, manuscript. I've spent, I would like to say I spent a lot of hours this week studying this sermon, but in reality, I've spent about 30 years studying this sermon for such a time as this, as God has uh, placed me here uh, in Athens, I mean Austin. Okay, so let me, uh, let, me, let me read to you what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and then in Hebrews chapter 4. All Scripture, all graphe, and by the way, all 51 times that graphe is used in the New Testament, it always rever- refers to the Old Testament, okay? Except one instance, which I'll show it to you in just a little bit, which is fascinating to me. All Scripture, all graphe, is given by inspiration of God. And, and those five English words are really one Greek word, theonoustos, which means all Scripture is literally God-breathed, God-granted, God-birthed. And the Scripture is profitable for the following reasons, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is 2 Timothy chapter 3. That is arguably the definitive passage in the Bible about the Bible. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about itself. I know there's a lot of external evidences for the veracity and the trustworthiness of Scripture. However, we must not overlook the very fact that the Bible itself claims deity. It claims that it has been birthed literally uh, by God. In fact, Psalm 119, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, it happens to be the middle chapter of all the 66 books, every verse, 100 plus, almost 200 verses, all of those verses deal with, in some way, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness, the veracity, the fidelity of the Word of God, the law of God, the commandment of God, the, the Scriptures. That's Psalm 119. Also, Psalm 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and energies. The Greek word energies is where we get our English word, pretty obviously transliterated, energy. For the word of God is living and energetic. It is powerful. And God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. If I'm speaking to you today and, and you feel this little jolt of, wow, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about it like that, or mm, that kind of stings a little bit, or oh, that, that pierces my conscience. Let me tell you something. That is God's Word. That is its divine origin. It is doing its work. Or if you're here today and and you feel this impression from God's Word and it encourages you and it comforts you and it assures you, I'm telling you, no other book has that explosive power to be able to convict you on the one hand and then be able to inexorably encourage and build you up on the other hand, even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. And it is a discerner 
of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Usually there are three different reactions to the Scriptures. The first one is apathy. You may want to jot that down in your notes there. Uh, I'm a teacher at heart, and so if I sound like I'm teaching, uh, then amen. That's what I'm trying to do. And if I sound like a lawyer, an attorney, I'm trying to prosecute a case for the Scriptures, that's precisely what I'm trying to do. And here's why. Have you been to a local university or college in America lately? I would, I would gander to say most, the vast majority, do what they can to undermine the Scriptures. In fact, there's an atheist professor at the University of North Carolina, and this is how he begins his lecture. He says, how many of you young freshmen believe in the Bible? And there are about 400 in the class, and they all are like, well, I believe it. Almost all of them, 400 of them. How many of y'all believe the Bible? He says, okay, you can put your hands down. How many of y'all read the Bible? They all just kind of, and he launches into a vicious diatribe against the Scriptures and against them for being hypocrites, saying they believe in the Bible, but they never read it. The first reaction many people have towards Scripture are those university freshmen. They, they may say they believe in the Bible, but they're very apathetic towards it or complacent toward it. They, they never read it. And that could be the case for many of you here today. You say you believe in the divine authority of Scripture, all 66 books of canonical Scripture, but truth be known, you, you hardly ever read the Bible, and so you would be apathetic toward the Scripture. Number two, there are those who adore the Scriptures. You have great adoration and esteem for the Word of God. You, you begin every day on your knees in prayer, and you begin every day with reading at least a passage from the Bible. If that is you, I just want to ask you a question today. If you would say, Brother Danny, that's me. I adore the Bible. I love the Bible. And almost every day, I will read a passage in the Bible, whether it's on the computer or whether it's the Bible in my hand or my iPad, my iPhone. Would you just raise your hand if you do that, if you read the Bible every day? God bless you, uh, 70, 80 percent of you. So many places in the world today, there are people, millions and millions of people, who would dearly love and cherish to have a copy of the Bible in their mother tongue. There's a group in China, as Nick Ripkin talks about in his book, The Insanity of God. And by the way, we're still working on the, uh, the, the Ripkins, uh, Nick and Ruth. We're trying very hard to get them at Great Hills Baptist Church, and we're, we think we're close. But he shares a, a true story, and I believe it's in China, where they had one copy of the Bible for a hundred uh, teachers and, and preachers in China, but they had one copy of the Scripture. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but let me reiterate this. They took the Bible, and because they only had one copy, and, and, and they were 100, 170, I believe it was, teachers and, 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 and pastors in the congregation in this training as they were training in some remote area, uh, trying to hide from the authorities. And what they began to do is they began to rip the pages out of the Scriptures, and the people were just like, just cherishing it. And as soon as they would rip a page out and hand it to one, or, or rip a few pages and hand it out, they would take that and they would just put it close to their chest. They were so grateful just to have a page or two of this book that God has so blessed us with in America. I tell you, we have multiple copies. I do in my office. I have multiple copies. Sometimes I look at the older copies of the Bible that I used to preach from when I was a young preacher, and they're just about torn in two. And somebody said, if your Bible is worn out, you're probably not. And I kind of like that. 
And so I, I, I read it every day. I try to memorize it. I try to live my life by it. And I want to go down as one of those people who say that, yes, I believe in the Word of God. I base my life up on it. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's infallible. I believe it's God's very Word to us today. And so those are the people who are not apathetic, but they adore the Bible. Then number three, there are those who, are, who have antipathy toward the Bible. Antipathy means disregard or it really has a, 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 this definition of the word antipathy, anti, against. It, it really is more than just against. It is, it is you, you're very much opposed to the Scriptures. Now, obviously, if you're here today, there's a very good chance that you do not fall into the third category of somebody being antipathetic toward the Word of God. But I promise you, the vast majority of people in our city, I would classify as antipathy towards scriptures. Not that they just don't, they don't like it. They, they don't want to have anything to do with it. And if you believe it and they ask you questions about it, what will you say about it? Will you say, well, I just believe it. I was always, I was always taught it was God's Word and I just don't doubt it. Let me tell you something, guys. That would go well in America about 50 years ago. As we would say in Alabama, that dog does not hunt anymore in America, Okay. You need to have something more substantive to say than tell somebody that, oh, I just believe in the Bible and uh, I just, I've never really questioned its authority. I've never really studied why I believe the Bible. I just, I, just, oh, I just believe it. Let me tell you something, friends. You've got to get beyond that. and We've got to get to a place where we can listen to people and we can um, speak to them with, with knowledge and with compassion and to be able to help them overcome some of the mental hurdles and obstacles they have uh, toward the Scripture. Well, antipathy toward the Scripture is no new phenomenon, is it not? I think about a couple of men in history. I think of Voltaire, uh, the famous French, Frenchman, atheist, who, who was very much opposed to the Bible. He said, before he died in 1778, he said, "...in a hundred years Christianity will be swept into antiquity." And remembered no more. That's what he said. It's very interesting that 50 years after Voltaire died, Bible translators went into his home and printed the Bible on his very printing presses. Voltaire's. Interesting. I think about the age of reason, Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, which I always looked at Thomas Paine in a pejorative way until I studied uh, our colonial history. And, And he's... I tell you, Thomas Paine was a brilliant man, and there's many things I agree and I appreciate about him, his patriotism. But there's one thing in particular I disagree with Thomas Paine in his book, The Age of Reason. He he really embodies the spirit of the Enlightenment in America. By the way, he died in 1809. This is what he said, and I quote, In five years from now, there will be no Bible in America. I have gone through the Bible with an axe, and I have cut down all of its trees, end of quote. Well, you know how fallacious and erroneous that was because it is still number one bestseller every single year in America and worldwide, uh, the Word of God. What about some more modern-day attacks? You say, yeah, I get Voltaire and I get um, uh, you know, these, these guys from, from yesteryear, Thomas Paine and so forth. What about today? Have you ever read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown? Did you ever go see the movie? Very, very fascinating. The Da Vinci Code really is a, it is a subtle attack against the basics of Christianity and especially uh, the Bible. I describe it this way. It is a conspiracy story 
with drops of truth in the midst of a sea of misinformation and falsehood. Uh, It was interesting to me because just a few weeks ago, they did not reference Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, but there was this whole one-hour special on television, and it sounded just like it was come right out of the page of Dan Brown's fictitious novel about how the Scriptures today cannot be trusted. And the reason they cannot be trusted is because early on, there were some men in the church who tried to suppress women and to suppress truth, and what they did was they collected the special group of, of, of Scriptures, if you will, and they ignored all these other biblical writings, but they ignored them and suppressed them so that they could have authority over people. Now, Dan Brown, he writes this as if it is history, but that is so fallacious. There is no evidence whatsoever that the people did those things that, that he said. For example, he talks about the suppression of the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, what about the Gnostic Gospels? And this documentary that I watched And these things that I've studied for many years, and Dan Brown's novel, it all came together when they said, yes, the Gospel of Thomas, why is that not in your Bible? Well, the reason it's not in our Bible is because Thomas never wrote it. It was published, or it was written in AD 150, so Thomas died in the first century. He never could have written that book. And by the way, why would the early church include the Gospel of Thomas when it says this? Peter said, women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, let us make Mary a male, for only those females who make themselves male are worthy to go to heaven. That's what the Gospel of Thomas says. That's why it's not in the canonical writings. But Dan Brown's like, oh, but it has this truth and this hidden meaning, and and the Bible, it it should be much larger. And no, no, it shouldn't. By the way, one lady said, oh, Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, absolutely it is true or it would have never been published. (laughs) Another guy said, I read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and I will never go to a church again. I was working out at a gym one time and a guy came in to me and he said, hey, The Da Vinci Code is out. How do you really know? That Jesus did not marry Mary and have many children. How do you know? Because now we've got this, it's basically Gnosticism revisited. Now we have, now we're all illuminated because of the Gnostic Gospels and and there are all these other writings. Whether the reason they're not in the Bible is because they were contrary to everything the New Testament church community knew about Jesus and knew about uh, what what he taught. The most hated book ever written. What about the antipathy of the new atheist, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who died of pancreatic cancer just a couple of years ago, and before he died, he asked his friends, he said, whatever you do, please do not let me convert to Christianity. As I'm about to die, I know I'm probably going to be a little sympathetic toward religion, please, whatever you do, stop me. Why, why such antipathy? Why such vitriol and disdain and hatred for God and the scriptures. Another man that's in this camp of the new atheisms, and a man by the name of John Loftus. John Loftus, Pastor Ochester, he was a like, like you and me. He was a follower of Christ. He was a pastor of a church. He began, unlike preacher and me, he began 
to have serious doubts about the Bible. He went online to a group of evangelical pastors, and he just kind of put it out there and said, guys, there's some things in the Bible I just don't know about, and I'm beginning to doubt. And I'm telling you, those evangelical pastors went kaboom! I mean, they eviscerated him, and they just said, you heathen, how in the world could you do such a thing? You're a reprobate. These evangelical pastors. And then John Loftus, in his testimony, said, then I walked away from the Scripture, I became an atheist, and I have some of my Protestant evangelical pastors to thank for my atheism. Let me tell you something, guys. Whether it's a pastor, a pope, a priest, a people, it don't matter. If they begin to have questions and they're really debating with this, the very worst thing we can do is tell them to shut up, just have faith. The best thing we can do is take them to the evidence. And so for the next few minutes, give or take a few, I'm going to share with you some evidences of why you can trust the Bible, okay? Number one, the uniqueness of Scripture. This is a very uh, unique book. It it claims that it is God-breathed, and it claims also that it is energies, that it is living and powerful, that it has the capacity to reveal our inner thoughts and to penetrate our being in such a way that we are convicted to our very core. This is a unique book for sure. Number one, it is unique in its composition. If you're taking notes, you want to jot down the word composition in the blank there. The Bible was written over 1,400, 1,500-year time span. Forty-plus authors, three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. I'm going to tell you something. You've got to admit, at least, that it is unique. This is one unique uh, book, but it only consists of 66 books. Now, when I use the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, I'm not talking about something you you shoot off and, you know, blow something up. The canon literally means a read or a standard of measurement. And sometimes you're going to be asked, why don't you include the Apocrypha? Why do you only have 66 books? And what I want you to be able to do is say, that is a very good question. And here's why, unlike the Roman Catholics, who did not adopt it until 1546, here's why we do not include the Apocrypha in our Old Testament canon, and you walk through some reasons with them, okay? And I'll share some of these with you in a moment. But first, let me give you this quote. Uh, Tonight in my small group, Explore God group, when I have hopefully uh, some atheists and some other friends will come and join us, I'm going to share with them what I'm I'm sharing with you. Um, F.F. Bruce was born in 1910. He died in 1990. He is regarded as one of the great scholars of our, of our day. F.F. Bruce uh, was educated in, um, amongst other places, Cambridge University, University of Aberdeen, and the University of Vienna. He was a professor at the University of Edinburgh and the University of Manchester. A very learned, learned man. He wrote a book entitled, The New Testament Documents, Are They reliable. The New Testament documents, are they reliable? Now, some secular humanist would say, well, F.F. Bruce, I mean, with all that education, he's really going to get us some ammunition so that we can destroy any residue of confidence in the Bible. And F.F. Bruce did just the opposite. He said, he answered this rhetorical question with an absolute, unequivocal, resounding yes. 
the New Testament documents are incredibly reliable. And what you have to keep in mind is it wasn't like as the New Testament was being written that the, new, the community was going, oh, what are we going to do about this canon? Oh, what are we going to do about this book or that book? Listen to what Bruce says, and I, and I quote him. One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not come authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. End of quote. We'll come back to Bruce in just a moment, but let me share with you a little bit about the Old Testament. The Old Testament canon was formally adopted and embraced by 300 B.C. There's a book written in 250 B.C. called, I bet some of you can guess the name of it, LXX, the 70. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. It starts with an S. Anybody take a gander at it? It's called the Septuagint. That's a very important document. The Septuagint, when you study bibliology, the study of uh, the Scriptures. Within the Septuagint originally, or within the Old Testament canon, what you have is, is what we have in our Old Testaments, uh, 37 books in canonical Scripture, and what was confirmed in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. What you do not have is the Apocrypha books. Now, the Apocrypha means hidden. It's kind of like pseudopigrapha, the, the false Gnostic documents. But the Apocrypha, I believe it has some historical validity to it, like the Maccabees. I enjoy First and Second Maccabees, Maccabees. But why aren't they included in our Protestant Bible, whereas they are included in our Roman Catholic Friends Bible? Well, here's a couple of reasons why. Number one, Josephus, the greatest historian of the Jews in the first century did not regard those writings as superlative in spiritual nature, did not, did not include them in the canon. Jesus and the apostles, they quoted from the Old Testament, almost every book in the Old Testament they never quoted from the Apocrypha. There may be one possible quote in, out of the book of Enoch found in Jude, but by and large uh, they did not. And finally, it was not until the Council of Trent in 1546 that the Roman Catholic Church officially embraced the Apocrypha into the Old Testament canon. I mentioned in passing the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm telling you guys, it is one of the greatest finds in secular and Christian archaeology. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered by a young shepherd boy, he threw a rock in the cave in Qumran, and I've actually been there and I've seen, this is just amazing, out in the middle of nowhere in a desert. With the Essenes, the first century group of, 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 of scholars who translated and wrote down Scripture, they had written these scrolls. And the earliest manuscripts we had on the Old Testament was A.D. 1000. But when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, they traced the date to around the first century, which predated any manuscript we had by a thousand years. And so many people thought, well, finally, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's going to prove that this Bible is a bunch of hokey-pokey stuff, and it should not be trusted. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, like verbatim, what we have in our Old Testament is confirmed in those scrolls. It is one of the greatest archaeological finds in the history of mankind. And you can ask any secular archaeologist, you can ask any Christian archaeologist, and they will say that is a huge confirmation. An incredible find if you believe in divine authorship of the Scriptures. What about the New Testament? 
And by the way, I know I sound kind of teachy, preachy today, and I know I'm going to go kind of long. I tell you what, if we go long today, next Sunday, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do that. I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I really can't. I, I, we, we might go a little long today, okay? If, if you really have got to go to the bathroom or if you need to go beat the Methodists and Presbyterians to Luby's or wherever it is you go, then I want you to know something. I'm not throwing any stones at you. It come about 12 o'clock. If you need to leave, then just leave, okay? And then we said, well, I've got my child in the nursery, and I, he's got to have his medicine or, or this. Then please leave, okay? I, I'm, I'm serious. Maybe 10 of you stick around when I'm done. I'm, I'm okay with that, okay? Uh, because those 10 who stick around will be extremely dangerous for the kingdom of God. What I'm sharing with you today, well, it's going to greatly augment, supplement not only your faith, but it's going to help you tremendously, especially in a few minutes when I talk about the New Testament canon. This is going to help you tremendously. I've spent my life studying this. And it's either a hoax, and I, it's false, and I'm a false prophet, or what I'm telling you today is the absolute truth that this is God's Word, and it can be, it must be, trusted as such. Well, let's talk about the New Testament for a moment. All the books of canonical Scripture in the New Testament were completed at the very latest, at the year A.D. 100. Uh, some, I believe, books like James and Galatians were written around A.D. 50. But if you want to give John or Revelation, you, let's say you just want to give it a real late date, that's, that's fine, and many scholars do, many scholars don't. But at the latest, the latest is A.D. 100. Now, let me read a couple of scriptures to you in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 that talks about the Bible. The Bible is talking about the Bible. Okay, let me read this to you. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord, Peter says, is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul. You say, is that the same Paul who wrote most of the New Testament? Yes. According to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Okay, Paul has written letters to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them, of these things in which some things are hard to understand. Can I get an amen? Yes, some things are hard to understand, Peter said about Paul, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do, watch this, the rest of the Scriptures, the graphe. Peter is equating the Apostle Paul's letters with the Old Testament. That is a huge passage of Scripture. It is saying that what we have, Paul's writings and the associates of the apostles and the apostles themselves, they are of divine origin just like the books in the Old Testament. If you, this is a great verse, 2 Peter 3. Now let me read you another one. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The Bible says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and the doctrine. Amen. For the Scripture says, okay, Every time the word graphe is used in the New Testament, capital S, Scripture, I, I said a moment ago, what does it refer to? Were you listening? The Old Testament. Now, what he's about to do, and Paul is about to quote Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, and when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That is Deuteronomy 25, 4. The Scriptures, Paul says, and... Watch this. The laborer is worthy of his wages. 
The only time this word graphe does not refer to the Old Testament is this is a quote, and the Greek is identical to the sayings of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the exact same wording, and Paul says, this is Scripture. F.F. Bruce is right. They accepted it. If Jesus said it, and those close associates who were around him, and his apostles, his disciples, and their close associates, if they, were, if they wrote it and genuinely wrote it, then it is accepted as divine uh, in its origin, okay? Um, a couple of dates in church history which I think will be helpful to you. A.D. 367, my favorite early church father, a man by the name of Athanasius. In A.D. 367, in a letter to his church, he wrote this letter out to his church on an Easter sermon. And he had all 27 books of canonical scripture just like we have them in our Bibles today. Oh, but I thought all that came about over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, A.D. 367, Athanasius wrote all 27 books out. The Council of Carthage confirmed that in their meeting in A.D. 397. So, Wayne Gruden writes these words. Once the the writings of the New Testament apostles and their authorized companions are completed, we have in written form the final record of everything that God wants us to know about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and its meaning for the lives of believers for all time. Excellent quote. The canon is closed for a reason because the apostles are dead and the close associates like Luke are dead as well. That's why it is is closed. That's why when the Mormons knock on my door and say, but I have another testament from Joseph Smith, I ask, did Joseph Smith see Jesus Christ? Did he walk with Jesus Christ? Uh, Or was he a close associate of Paul and Peter? And they say, no. Then I say, I don't accept it. Because the, the, the early church would not accept anything. It would look at it as lesser writings, less superlative writings than these writings that we have in our New Testament. So the Bible is very unique in its composition. Number two, it's unique in its continuity. In its continuity. Think about that. This book, from Genesis to Revelation, over 1,500 years, has the same theme running throughout it. And for some of you that are interested... Uh, a guy's got his Ph.D. from Cambridge, has written a book called The Mission of God. And in his book, he demonstrates how from Genesis to Revelation, the scarlet thread of redemption runs through all 66 books. How could it be that it doesn't contradict itself? How could it be that it, it, it talks about Israel and a coming Messiah, and then the Messiah comes just like it said he would come there in the Old Testament? What amazing continuity and togetherness these 66 books comprise. Josh McDowell, who wrote a great book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. By the way, Josh McDowell started out just like Lee Strobel. Started out just like a good friend of mine uh, years ago to set out to disprove Christianity. And they really set out with an edge about them to not only disprove it, but also to silence Christians who believe in it. Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel. In fact, everybody that I have read that have genuinely, open-mindedly looked at the evidence for Scripture and the evidence especially for the resurrection have walked away as believers in Christ. If they were open-minded. Josh McDowell had a, had a man come to him. He was, he was recruiting him to be a salesman for the great books of the Western world. Y'all seen these books? Big books. The great books of the Western world. 
And the man was saying, uh, Josh McDowell, you got a lot of charisma. Man, you, you can make a lot of money. You can make me a lot of money if you'll go door to door and sell these great volumes. And Josh McDowell said, I listened to him for five minutes tell me about the classics of Western literature of antiquity. And he said, I listened and I listened. I couldn't listen anymore. And I said, okay, now let me tell you about the greatest book of the Western world, of any world. And Josh McDowell talked to that guy for 90 minutes about the Bible. And two days later, that salesman gave his life to Christ. He, be, he became a Christian because of the preponderance and the overwhelming nature of the evidence that supports uh, the Scriptures. Think about it. Let me say this again. 1,400-year time frame, 40-plus authors, three continents, three languages, and yet amazing harmony and continuity. The Bible is unique in its continuity. Number three, the Bible is unique in its circulation. The Bible is unique in its circulation. Now, really, this is not up for debate. I mean, if somebody wants to debate you, they're going to lose this debate. Years ago, I, I called the American Bible Society in New York City. I just picked up the phone, and I called them. And I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm doing a study on the Scriptures, and I need to ask you a question. How many Bibles are printed worldwide every year? I wasn't prepared for what she told me, okay? She didn't tell me anything. She started laughing at me. I'm, I'm serious. I, she, I said, are you okay, ma'am? She started laughing. She says, sir, you don't understand what you're asking. There is no way we can keep up with how many Bibles are printed every year. It is the number one perennial bestseller year after year after year. It is the most popular book in the world bar none. And I said, thank you very much. You confirmed what, what I thought. She was preaching to me. She was excited because its circulation is so unique. No other book has been circulated, read, memorized quite like this book. It's unique. Number two, it is inspired. Now, this is where... I'm going to share some things with you that are going to be a little bit technical, but I do hope you walk away with this and understand this because this is going to help you tremendously. The Bible claims for itself divine authorship. In 2 Timothy 3.16 it says, it is theonoustos. It is literally God-breathed. It says in Hebrews 4.12 that it is powerful, that it is energy, and it is the, literal, it is the Word of God. There are many theories for inspiration. If you were to go to uh, college or grad school and take a Bible lesson or a Bible class, they will teach you. There are many theories, uh, the dynamic theory, there's the theory of inspiration that just like Shakespeare and Beethoven were inspired, that the authors of Scripture were inspired. But to me, the best theory is called the plenary verbal theory of inspiration. Uh, plenary means all and verbal means writings, that all the writings that we have are the inspired, true uh, Word of God. Now, we, you, you look at this and you go, but, 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 you're, but you're biased. And I am biased. I, I'm, I'm looking at this from a believer's standpoint, okay? And you may be looking at it from an unbelieving uh, standpoint. And, and I, I'm not intimidated by that. I'm not worried about that. But I would just ask you, to look at, uh, look at the following. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture here at Great Hills. When I say the inerrancy of Scripture, I'm talking about the inerrant original autographs of Scripture. We, we do not have the original autographs, okay? Uh, the original autographs in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, uh, they are no more. But what we have are copies of, of the uh, originals, okay? 
and through the discipline of textual criticism, stay with me, this is a very important statement. Through the discipline of textual criticism by men like Bruce Metzger and F.F. Uh, Bruce and some very smart, much, much smarter people than me, they have proven through the Dead Sea Scrolls and textual criticism that we have in our hands 99% of the original autograph. But wait a minute, I, I thought it was translated in eras through years through years. No, no, no. Through the discipline of textual criticism, we have demonstrated that the very Bible you hold in your hand is an exact replica of the original autographs of the, of the Old and the New Testaments. Guys, that is astounding. That is, that, that, that is just earth-shattering in, in, in my mind. And by the way, I want to show you there's some evidences for that, some proofs for that. Grudem again says this. He said, when we say the original manuscripts were inerrant, we're also implying that over 99%, he says, over 99% of the words in our present manuscripts are also inerrant, for they are exact copies of the originals. Okay? You say, well, what about the one per- I know some of y'all are asking it. What about the 1%? The 1% has to do with some numbers. Okay? It has some numbers over here that are contrary to some numbers over here. And so over 99% has nothing to do with any major doctrine. It just has something to do with some small numbers. Dan Brown won't tell you that, will he? The Da Vinci Code creates the Bible to be some mythical, you know, some era-filled document. Prophecy. Prophecy is another powerful internal witness about the inspiration of Scripture. There are 450 Old Testament Scriptures that point to the Messiah. And Jesus Christ... To fulfill those prophecies about him is mathematically impossible. I mean, one person cannot fulfill all of those prophecies unless he is of divine origin. A friend of mine shared these words with me. He said, for only 48 of the 450 prophecies to be fulfilled is 10 to the 150th power. And that's just 48. And then he said the number of electrons in the universe are 10 to the 80th power. I don't understand where people get these numbers, but I just know that's a lot of numbers, okay? That's a lot of zeros after it. And so for Jesus Christ, one human being, one God-man, to fulfill all these multiple, multiple prophecies that were written hundreds and hundreds of years before him, it is absolutely supernatural and miraculous. Let me read a scripture to you. Isaiah says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient time. Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. By the way, you can look at all sacred, so-called sacred literature, you will find nothing of predictive prophecy like what you find in the Bible. Now let's talk about archaeology for just a moment. There are 25,000 archaeological confirmed sites today of cities and places and populations mentioned in the Old Testament. Did did y'all hear me okay? 25,000 confirmed archaeological sites that were mentioned in the Old Testament. A few years ago they were saying, yeah, you can find them all but the Hittites. There are no Hittites in the geographical record there, and so you're in error and you're wrong. It's, It's so amazing to me. That if somebody can find just a slither of an opportunity to prosecute and persecute Christians, they will. And then they found this inscription that talked about the Hittite population. And there they were all along, just like the Bible said. 
just recently, and I read this article just this week, the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. John's the only person who mentions this, the five colonnades. And people are like, that's crazy. We've excavated Jerusalem, and there are no five colonnades where John says in John chapter 5, the five pools and the lame man and the angels stir in the water. Yeah, right. It, it just does not exist until they found it. And they found it. And this guy, he's a Ph.D. from, let me see if I can get his name right, Charlesworth. He's a Princeton scholar, Princeton, like Princeton University Ivy League, and he says this, this is a major confirmation of the gospel of John. John's the only one who said this, and now we verify, and by the way, I've seen it with my own naked eyes. I've looked at it, and I almost just bowed down before God and worshiped because I saw the five Pillars, just like John talked about them in John chapter 5. Nobody else talks about this in antiquity, but John, that's why everybody laughed at him until they found it. And they found it, just like John described it. Another external witness to the truthfulness of the Bible is what I'm about to share with you is the absolute most important thing I'm going to tell you all day, bar none. Okay? It's a little technical, and I don't, I don't want to confuse you anyway. If there's a mist in the pulpit, there's going to be a fog in the pew. I'm telling you, and I don't want to do that. I want to be as clear and as succinct and as cogent as I possibly can. I'm going to rely on my notes a lot because there are some dates that I want you to make sure you get. You say, well, I'm not going to write all this down. I'm just going to Xerox copy your manuscript. And that's perfectly all right. I want you to. Before I say that, F.F. Bruce said, why all the fuss about the New Testament? Now remember, he's the Cambridge, Aberdeen scholar who taught at University of Manchester. He said, I want to tell you why all the fuss about the Bible. It was because the Bible makes demands on your life like no other book. And to quote Bruce, he says, And the character and works of its chief figure are so unparalleled. So here's the bibliographic test for the veracity of the New Testament. And, and really, there, there are two. And let me describe them this way. The bibliographic test goes like this. We do not have the original manuscripts. We don't. We don't have Caesar's Gallic Wars. We don't have Thucydides and Herodotus. We do not have the ancient documents. We just don't have them. And we don't have the ancient document that Paul wrote. We, we just don't do it. So, in order to test the veracity and truthfulness of the documents that we have, there are two criteria, okay? Number one, how many manuscripts do you have? Copies of the original. Now, it just goes to proof, the more manuscript copies you have, the more credence it gives to the original autograph. That's very important. Secondly, secondly, okay? What is the time frame between the original and the extant? What is the time frame between the original document and the extant copy, which simply means what we possess. Okay, the time frame, I get that. And that's where people come at me sometimes. And they say, yeah, but there's such a huge time frame between when Paul really wrote it and then when we got the first manuscripts of it. Okay, okay, hold on. F.F. Bruce says, whatever criterion you use to judge literature of antiquity, you have to be fair and use the same literature to judge the New Testament. Am I absolutely obfuscating, which means confusing? Have I absolutely confused anybody, okay? Two criteria. How many manuscripts and what is the time frame between the original and the extant? Now, here's where I'm going to have to rely on my notes because it's a little technical. 
Homer wrote the Iliad in 800 B.C. And we have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. Remember that. Herodotus wrote history around 480 to 424 B.C. And the number of manuscripts available today are a whopping eight. We have eight copies of the manuscript. Okay, now we don't have Herodotus' history. We have copies of the history. Okay, we have eight. Thucydides wrote around 460 to 400 B.C., and we have eight extant copies. Caesar Gallic Wars, he wrote this in 100 to 44 B.C., and we have ten copies left. And by the way, I could give you many other examples, but these are famous. Thucydides and Herodotus and Iliad and Gallic Wars, these are famous by any person's estimation. If you know literature, you know those are famous. All right, so we got 600, 8, 8, and 10. Okay, the New Testament, 5,686 copies of the manuscripts. That's just the Greek. When you add the other languages, there are 19,284 in other languages for a total of 24,970 copies of the Greek manuscript of the original that we do not have, remember? Remember, we don't have the original. So how many copies of that do we have that we have almost 25,000, okay? I didn't make this up, okay? This, this is just, this is truth. All right, secondly, how about the bibliographic test of the time lapse between the original and the extant? Homer's Iliad, I'm going to read it again. It was written in 800 B.C. The earliest copy we have is from 400 B.C., with a time difference of 400 years. Okay, stay with me. Herodotus' history was written in 480 to 425 B.C. The earliest copy today is dated around A.D. 900, and that's a total gap of 1,350 years. That's very important, by the way. Herodotus, and the same thing can be said for Thucydides. His book called History was written around 460 to 400 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 900 A.D. with a gap of 1,350 years, okay? So the original was written here, and the earliest manuscript we have of Herodotus and Thucydides' history is 1,350 years removed, okay? That's, that's just evidence. How about Caesar's Gallic Wars? It was written in 100 B.C. The earliest copy we have is... A.D. 900, so the gap is 1,000 years. The New Testament was written between A.D. and 100. And the gap between the original and the extant is 50 years. 50. John Ryland's papyra, the fragment of the Gospel of John at the University of Manchester in England, contains a fragment of the Gospel of John that is dated in A.D. 130. If John wrote his book in A.D. 80, then it's 50 years removed. Hold on. It's even more interesting. The complete New Testament dates at A.D. 325. Okay, to, um, so you've got A.D. 325, the time frame between A.D. 325, which, which is really, when you're looking at... The, the whole completed New Testament that we have is A.D. 325, okay? It was written in A.D. 100. So you do the math. There's a time frame there of 225 years. Yeah, 
I got you. I got you. See, I knew it. 225 years and all those eras creep in. All right, listen to this statement. This is F.F. Bruce. No classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus and Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals, and nobody doubts the authenticity, the veracity of Herodotus and Thucydides. Those there's 1,350 years separated, and yet everybody wants to doubt the 200 years of the New Testament. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because Thucydides and Herodotus, they don't tell us how to live. Jesus tells us how to live. And he tells us some hard things like, you only come to me or you don't go to heaven. Or if you don't believe in me, you're going to hell. Therefore, people question its veracity. But they don't use the same criterion that they use, excuse me, criteria, the plural, that they use on the secular literature. The last thing I want to share with you is the usefulness of the Bible. So what is it good for? The Bible tells us about God and salvation, and it tells us about ourselves. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul said, These scriptures, Timothy, are able to make you wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, the scripture says, The Bible is profitable for the following things, for doctrine. The Bible tells us what to believe. For reproof, tells us what not to believe. For correction, what not to do. And for instruction in righteousness, it tells us what we should do. Nearly every skeptic or cynic toward the Christian faith assumes a priori. It postulates a priori that the Bible is in error. They assume that. They come to the table assuming that it is false, that it has many errors. And so my desire As a man who loves God and loves this church and loves the Christian faith, my desire is to share with you that that book that you're holding and that book that you're looking at, that this mysterious book is the Word of God. No other book like it. Listen, if you're skeptical, the very fact that people hate it so much ought to clue you in a little bit to its authenticity, okay? I said earlier that God always reserves the right for you to trust Him. And there are some things, there are some questions, some answers that that I don't have, some questions that you have. But I think there's there's an enormous amount of evidence to help us posit our faith in what this book has to teach us. I was in a meeting just a couple weeks ago and... uh, And one of the pastors said... He was preaching a series of messages, and God gave, him a, God gave him a word, a prophetic word. I mean, God spoke to him in his spirit, okay? And he says, I, want, I believe this is of God. And, and he couldn't hardly say it because when he said it, he started tearing up. But this is, this is what he said, and it was so convicting to me. I, I believe it is from God, that God spoke to this pastor and gave him a good word, just like I hope God has spoken to this pastor today and given him a good word for you. He said these words, how can... How can we know what we know and live like we don't? How can we know what we know and live like we don't? In fact, I think there would be a whole lot more people believe what we believed if we only lived what we believed. 
And there was a commensurate behavior attached to our lofty professions. You may be here today and say, well, thank you. Um, I'm still a hardcore atheist and agnostic and a skeptic and a cynic. And I just don't believe any of it. Let me just tell you something. God bless you. You know, well, I can't say that because you don't believe in God. Uh, I bless you. And I'm, I'm not angry at you. I, I just say, you know, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> you know, I believe that you're wrong. But I appreciate you being open-minded and, and studying and, and tracking through. Now, some of you are here today and say, I, I do believe. And I want to recommit my life to Christ and recommit my study of the Scriptures and, and recommit my study of apologetics so that I might be able to give an answer to those who ask me questions. But some of you here today and some of you, my friends, and by the way, I get to hear from people from California to Virginia uh, all the time writing me letters about these sermons that we're preaching. And uh, most of them are kind, I want to say. Most of them are very kind. But you may be watching us on TV and say... You know, I'm ready. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says that he is. What do I need to do? And here's what you need to do. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? We'll wrap up our message. We'll have our invitation and then we will depart. God, we thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for its truthfulness. Thank you, Lord, that I have yet to meet anybody who believes it and lives it who regrets it. Thank you, Lord, that I've yet to meet anybody who believes it and lives it and yet still regrets their faith. God, I pray today that um, you would take what I have shared and that you would implant it upon the hearts of your people so that they are encouraged and bolstered in their faith. And I know, Lord, they can. I know I cannot answer every question of every skeptic and cynic. But, Lord, we can give some viable answers to people's sincere questions. Lord, I thank you today that there is somebody in this nation, there is somebody going to hear this sermon, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you're going to convict them, and you're going to draw them to the faith. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you would do that even right here in Austin, Texas, among our people right here, Lord, at 10,500 Jollyville. So, Lord, we just commit this invitation to you. We thank you for the privilege, God, the freedom to be able to stand and to give an apologetic, a defense of the Word of God and the freedom of this great country. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do invite you to stand with me as we have our invitation. Terry's going to lead us.